Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 44. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzama, and with me, our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Good day to you, Dr. Woolman. And a wonderful day to you, Christina. How are you? Oh, fantastic. The sun is shining. There's no frost on the ground. It's great. <laughs> it's, it's summer. It, it's Isn't it incredible? It's, the temperatures are hitting 80 suddenly. Yeah, I like that. Well, the the... I'm worried about the baby birds out there. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, greetings, everybody, and welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your host and medical guide, along with Christina, as we travel through the uh, healthcare galaxy, searching for ways toward optimal health. Did you make it through the winter without uh, the flu? Oh, yes. Without the flu and without the flu shot. Mm. And without all those other shots that they want to give, of course. <laughs> you know me, Glenn. I, if, um, you know, I'd go for my annual checkup and then I kind of move through all the wonderful supplements and <laughs> into that holistic world and <laughs> it's great. So it's, it was, um, it's quite a, uh, interesting, um, the number of people when I'm at the clinic, you know, for my annual checkup on, how many of them are in there with their flu shots and things like that, all lining up, and you know, mm -hmm. and it works for a lot of people. It works yeah. for a lot of people. So. It does, like everything else. Yes, and here I am spraying essential oils all over my child before he goes to school, <laughs> and me before I volunteer at the school, and so far we're so good. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> so how about you? Uh, I'm doing good. Yeah, uh, I feel good. I try to avoid the flu and uh, all things sickness, although I have seen some people come down with it pretty bad, and there have been a few that got through it pretty quickly. Oh, good, good. You know what is really wonderful right now is, is when, when uh, at the clinic that I go to, it's, um, you know, not everybody's there for a cold or a flu or, or something like that, but they have those wonderful packages now that has the mask in it, a little package of Kleenex huh? in there and a little package of hand sanitizer in one little packet. So if people come in coughing or sneezing, that's the first thing they get handed. <laughs> yeah. And it's mandatory that they put on the mask. Nice. It's yeah. about time. Yeah. It's about time. Yes. Yes. And I thought, oh, this is great. This is really great. So lots of nice changes that I see whenever I'm there. <laughs> Excellent. So today, mm -hmm. uh, as you know, I love emergency medicine and spent uh, most of my life in emergency medicine. And most of us that go into emergency medicine do it for a few reasons. One, uh, we love that specialty, all the aspects of that specialty, kind of uh, taking all the critical areas and dangerous areas and life-threatening areas of every other specialty and putting it into one specialty, the crises. But we also like the lifestyle. Many of us uh, like to go to work and then be away from work and go play or do creative things. But there are some people in emergency medicine that decide to take it a little uh, further and become medical directors like I did. So you get a little more administrative uh, status and, and responsibilities and a little bit of your free time is taken away because you're now working in administration, not just emergencies. But occasionally there's a, a a group of people that uh, do things, take things even to a higher level, and that's one of our uh, our guests today, uh, Dr. Angelo Salvucci Jr. He's uh, a good friend and a longtime colleague and friend. Uh, he's the medical director for the Santa Barbara and Ventura Counties Emergency Medical System Services mm -hmm. Agencies. He also is a uh, an advisor on the Emergency Medical Services World Editorial Board, on their advisory board, and we're going to speak with him about that. But this means that, uh, although he'll tell you more about it, uh, but it means that he's taken it to another level. He's, he's one of the people that gets involved when we hear about uh, big disasters and uh, both man-made and non-man-made types of disasters. So uh, today, I think we're going to learn a lot, and uh, it's going to be pretty interesting. And I would like to uh, now introduce you and to our audience, uh, Dr. Angelo Salvucci. 
Hello, Angelo. Hello, Glenn. <laughs> Hello, Dr. You? Salvucci. Thank Hi, you so much for coming on our show. And thank you for having me. This is a real pleasure. We're happy to have you here. I've been uh, trying to get uh, Dr. Salvucci on the show uh, a number of times, but usually when I try to get him on the show, it's because some disaster happened and all of us are glued to the TV and radio and internet to mm -hmm. find out about what's happening and things like that. And that's when I always think it's a great idea to have him on the show. <laughs> Fortunately, <laughs> that's, when he's, that's when he's busy working. <laughs> and taking care of people. So we're very pleased to have you here today. We Angelo, have to, um, Glenn, we have to beat CNN, Tim. <laughs> that's right. We want Angelo to be our guy on the street. Well, this is a, cross your fingers, this is a good day, no disasters yet. Well, that's right. Uh, Angelo, usually as a medical guide, I like to tell our viewing audience uh, what I believe is going to be the path that we take today, although it doesn't always uh transpire that way. Uh, first, I want people to get to know you a little bit, uh, why you went into medicine and a number of other things, and learn about your path and your journey as to where you are today. I want to talk a little bit about what that is, and then I want to spend the majority of time talking to people and you and Christina about uh, what we do in case of a big disaster. Most of the time on our show, we've had a number of our our colleagues in emergency medicine on the show, and they've usually spoken about personal disasters. Someone's having a heart attack, a stroke, uh, how to deal with this or that. But we want to talk today about uh, big healthcare planning and family planning and things like that from you. Is that all right? Absolutely. That's why I'm here. Yeah, excellent. So let's start uh, just so that we can get to know you a little bit. Tell us how, when, why you got into medicine, what age, what drove you into medicine, and then maybe what drove you or brought you into emergency medicine. And then we'll talk a little bit about how you moved to uh, emergency medical services medical director. Well, I'll start with the medicine part first. That was a combination of enjoying science and wanting to be involved in biology or some facet of, of biology, and that fascinated me from my earliest memories. I also enjoyed being around people, and combining the two made medicine kind of a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. The only thing that competed, though, actually, was veterinary medicine, and I very seriously considered going into veterinary medicine and took my exam and was ready to apply to schools and thought better of it. So medicine was the, was the thing to do, and I've never really thought twice about it. But it's interesting you talk about emergency medicine or ask that question, because after 30 years, this is the 30th year, um, it wasn't until this year that I figured it out, and it was, <laughs> a, it was by reading a, a description of who an emergency physician is. And the common belief is that emergency physicians are adrenaline junkies, and there is an element of that. <laughs> and we, and we, we enjoy that. And most of us do other thrill-seeking things uh, on the side. But what I didn't realize, and these researchers published their, their study, was that we are problem solvers. So I, there's nothing more fun in this world than walking into a busy emergency department and having 10 patients, all of whom need some type of care relatively quickly and prioritizing it and meeting everyone's needs simultaneously. It's, it's, a, it's a switch flipper for me. I really enjoy it tremendously. So emergency medicine today, 30 years after day one, is as exciting, if not more exciting and more satisfying than it ever has been. So that was another, in retrospect, no-brainer, although I didn't realize that what part of the brain I was using to figure that out. That's great. So then you asked about emergency medical services. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that, uh, we had some family members that were involved where I grew up in Connecticut. And when I came out here, it was just something that was available and of interest and and those are people who act a lot like emergency physicians, only in a different setting with a different set of tools. And being able to lend my expertise of attending medical school and gathering these years of experience 
to the pre-hospital environment was something I thought I could play a role and it would it would be a, a two-way street. We would we would enrich in each other, and it's and that's really again worked out just tremendously. Yeah, I really like that. So speaking of that for a moment, uh, in terms of putting your uh, stamp, you've been in this position as the medical director uh, for many years now. How about about how many years? Uh well, I started officially as the medical director of Santa Barbara County's EMS agency in 1990, so that's over 20 years. Ventura was uh, six years after that, but I've been involved really since I came to town to um, and started emergency medicine. I was involved with training and selecting and testing of paramedics, so it's been close to the whole 30 years. What... Exactly who is in emergency medical services? You're the medical director, so who who are you directing? Well, I'll speak mostly of California. Every state is a little bit different, but I'll tell you about California. So in in, in California is a county by county government structure. And within the county government is a public health department. Within the public health department is the emergency medical services agency. By state law, that agency is led by a physician with substantial experience in emergency medicine who is the medical director. Along with the medical director is a director and other uh, personnel, and we coordinate the system. And the system, you'll notice I keep saying emergency medical services and emergency medical services system because it's no one organization. And our role at the county level is to organize all of it. And that starts with the time you dial 911, actually starts even before that with our prevention efforts, but it starts, the emergency starts when you dial 911, goes through the telephone system, the 911 system, the dispatch system. First responders are dispatched, and that could be, the initial first responders could be a lifeguard, then the fire department then the ambulance company, and the ambulance will typically transfer, transport a patient to the emergency department. That emergency department may not be the closest one. It may be the hospital that has specialty care services to take care of heart attacks or trauma patients or pediatric patients or strokes. And the more we evolve in emergency medicine and emergency medical services, the more we begin to regionalize to identify centers of excellence where we take patients to that facility, that hospital almost always, that can specifically take care of their problem. They have the training, the equipment, and the personnel to take care of their specialty care needs. Well, I think that was really well put all the way around to give us a, a big picture. Thank you. If you... Uh, Look at your process right now, what you do. You've been in it for doing this for over 20 years. What kind of changes have you seen from the time that you came in to now? And then maybe what do you see in the future? Where is emergency medical services going in the future? Well, emergency medical services is a very young specialty. And, and I say young comparing it to surgery, which is thousands of years old. Emergency medical services started in most of the United States in about 1970. And it's so it's only less than 40 years old and we're still learning. When we first started with paramedics and advanced EMTs and started to develop ambulance standards, we were relying on what we call expert opinion. And those were people who understood a little bit about, or actually sometimes quite a bit, about emergency medicine, but not a lot about what individuals could be trained to do, and more importantly, what procedures and medical care patients needed before they got to the hospital that would make them better. We relied on that expert opinion, and and when I first started, much of what we did in the field was still expert opinion. So what has changed is we have now developed a body of literature, of studies, of investigations, of publications, of researchers, of people who specialize in, in what I do, 
who now have have applied scientific principles what we call evidence-based medicine to the practice of emergency medical services. So we do a much better job now of taking care of patients because we know what makes them better and avoid what makes them worse and take care of them in a way that is unique to the specialty of pre-hospital care. That's been the biggest change. We still, given that, still have a long ways to go. And the future is going to be to continue this. And I, and I could tell you about some specialty devices and I could tell you about using video equipment to put tubes in the airway now that we didn't used to. But it, it, but the overall philosophy is that we're using real scientific evaluation to understand and, and we're getting better quite rapidly. Excellent. Uh, tell us a device. I heard I I got uh, approached once to invest in a company that was able to change traffic lights so that the paramedics and fire and police could change something to a red light so that they could get through and be more safe. That was a device that someone was approaching me with. Give us something. Right. And what I think... um what I think you learn, perhaps, in that process is that wasn't necessarily the right thing to do because traffic patterns are um, are well established, and people know when the light turns green that they can proceed safely through the intersection. They don't even look at the light anymore. So if it all of a sudden turns red out of sequence, that's going to create an accident. And what we found were those systems sometimes created more accidents than fewer. Of course, I might be wrong. You might be a very wealthy man, Dr. Woolman, but I, I think that my understanding is that's what happened with those systems. I'll tell you about one, um, and, and, I, and I mentioned it briefly, which is video laryngoscopy. So in, in order to put a tube in someone's airway, in someone's trachea, it's a very complicated procedure where you have to acquire the motor skills to be able to use a rigid metal blade to lift the tongue and expose the vocal cord so you can pass the tube. That may sound easy, but in certain situations and in certain types of, of patients, it, that can, it can be very, very difficult. And the, the newest devices now use a video camera to go around the corner so that rather than having to go look straight into the mouth, you can look around the corner, around the tongue, and into the trachea, into the windpipe. That, that has made endotracheal intubation, the procedure of putting that tube, I, 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 I hate to say this because now I'll have a problem with my next one, but it makes it almost as easy as child's play. Yeah, and that was always very difficult, uh, and it was controversial for many years uh, in terms of the process. So that's great to see the that technology and medicine combined to do things for the benefit of all of us. What I'd really like to do now, and we could, uh, before I do this, Christina, any thoughts or any questions before I go into my next line of questions? Oh, no, I'm so mesmerized right now. <laughs> I, okay, then it is jump fascinating. In. Jump in. So, a- Angelo, I look at uh, emergency, big, big disasters uh, on a timeline. And what I'd like to do is present the timeline to you and then go through some things that our viewers might learn in each area of this timeline in order to prepare themselves uh, much more efficiently and effectively for uh, some kind of a natural or unnatural disaster. So the, the timeline for me is, of course, always I I look in terms of prevention and preparation. So we live, for example, in California where there are always the possibility of earthquakes, but today we don't have one. We should be prepared ahead of time. That's one area of the timeline, preparation ahead of time. The second is we also live in a place where there are fires, and sometimes a fire starts in one area, and we may have an indication that it's moving toward another area. So now we know something's wrong or like a hurricane that's coming so how do we prep specifically for something at that point? The third area is during an actual disaster. And then fourth and fifth may be 
immediately after and then long term after. So that's that's my big timeline. And that's what I'd like to cover a little bit today. So let's start with the first one in preparation for just anything naturally. Uh, what do you suggest for people as an emergency medical kit or other things around the house or phone numbers or whatever? Go for yeah. it. Well, and your sequence is, is spot on. And all of the disaster planners and disaster experts would advise that people do exactly what you described in the in the way that you described it. So you hardly need me today, but it's, um, but so you, you're, you, you've described it well. So the first thing is to develop a plan. And like with any, any, um, human endeavor, you're going to be more successful if you're prepared. And for a disaster plan, the, the first thing you want to do is develop a communications plan. So when, when a disaster strikes, how are you going to reassemble your family? And and there, and, there's, and that actually has two components. So if there's a disaster only within your home, a fire, then you want to designate a place just outside your home, the street corner, a neighbor's house. If, however, there's a community-wide disaster and you're in different locations, the kids are at school, mom's at work, dad's at a meeting, then you want to designate a place outside of your local community where you can get in touch with each other. This would, should also involve n- knowing every everyone's phones these days. That's far less of an issue than it was 10 years ago or certainly 20 years ago where everyone now carries a cell phone. Although, as, as you know from all of the disaster drills we've done and the real disasters, the first thing to break down is communication. <laughs> and those cell towers are going to be used by emergency responders as the highest priority, and you may not be able to use them. So don't don't rely completely on your cell phone. Uh, understand that you should be able to be able to reassemble your family somewhere off site in a predetermined way. You should also have some supplies, as you say. So typically, you'll read to have three days. Although here in California. With major earthquakes damaging large amounts of our infrastructure, we say if you can have seven days of food, non-perishable food, and water, that would be a better plan. In three days, with a huge earthquake, we're likely to get to you, but we're not 100% certain that would occur if there were a massive earthquake, and we don't know if there were an ongoing fire. Typically, fires blow over an, an area in less than a day, so it's less of an issue for a fire than for an earthquake. In other areas of the country, we have to worry about, and I responded to Katrina, so I've seen that firsthand, uh, that can be weeks before you're able to actually get supplies into your house. You'd be able to get away, but to have supplies in your house, it could easily be weeks. But we say somewhere between three days and a week. You want to have all of the necessary devices to be able to, 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 to get information. So you want to have a radio or a portable TV with a battery, so perhaps solar-powered in case you, it, it, there's a prolonged uh, electrical outage. And um, you want to be able perhaps to have a backup to that. If one doesn't work, you have another one. You want to have the telephone numbers to be able to get in touch with people uh, who will be able to give you emergency information, such as the Red Cross. There's Every community has disaster preparation websites that you should check right now. You want to have a fire extinguisher. You want to take a look around your house and see, in earthquake-prone areas such as here, whether everything is attached to the wall and unable to fall down should there be an earthquake. Many of the injuries and many of the deaths are due to preventable causes of things falling over onto people. One of the, one part that gets overlooked commonly in earthquake areas is if you have if you're in an earthquake area and you have gas, whether it comes from the street or you have a propane tank, have something to turn it off. If you are unable to do that, sometimes just that little bit of an oversight, not having the tool to turn that off, 
can make the difference between your house exploding or you being able to safely return once the roads are reopened. It would help to take a first aid class. Uh, go to the Red Cross, take a first aid class, understand how to take care of simple injuries, because again, um, the medical system will likely be overwhelmed. And finally, if you, and you should do this not even for disasters, but a simple fire in your own home, which is a personal disaster, is you should have an inventory of, of everything that's in your home. That'll be helpful for insurance purposes and for mementos. Make copies of those, store them off site. I think that is most, but it only touches the highlights. If you really want to understand how to get prepared for a disaster, and typically people don't do this until after they've had the disaster, but if you want to take the, the time to prepare, then it, there are numerous, numerous websites and, other, um, and brochures and other uh, bits of information out there. Okay, I think that uh, sort of prepares us beautifully for the pre-disaster and also maybe takes us into when it's starting to happen. We actually just got, uh, uh, I just got an email asking, and this could be into determining uh, the next part when a disaster is actually happening. Someone writes, uh, what would happen if what happened in Japan happened in Los Angeles right now? In other words, probably they're speaking of an earthquake followed by a tsunami. I'm guessing the airport would be washed away and nothing uh, could be uh, flown in or out. Uh, what do we have in place to take care of that? Well, what, uh, what I'm glad is you didn't ask about some nuclear power plant. Um, as well, because that, that I, I don't know that I'd really have the the complete answer to that. Although I could give give you some high level information, but um, if if the we we actually you may not recall this, Glenn, but that scenario you just described happened in Santa Barbara about five or six years ago. There was so much rain that the airport was flooded and closed. The freeway to the south was, there was a landslide. It was closed. It also took out the railroad tracks, so those were out. The freeway to the north was closed. San Marcos Pass was closed. So there was no way to get in or out of Santa Barbara except by boat. And the waves were pretty high, so that was pretty dangerous as well. So we, we were isolated for about 24 hours here in Santa Barbara. So we're no stranger to the concept of what you would do if you were unable to get in or out. Local communities are prepared in the way I've described individuals should be prepared. That, that preparation is not going to last for weeks, but it's certainly going to last for days until the infrastructure can, can be re, um, reconfigured. In, in the meantime, there, there are ways to get emergency medical assistance, which is which is helicopters. Now, sometimes these disasters are accompanied by big, in California at least, big storms, but those storms are not lengthy. So we could get helicopters in and out if all of the infrastructure that you just described were taken out. Nice thing about Los Angeles, and, and, and there was some planning in this, the entire country, is th there are places to land planes in many places you might not think of, the, the Los Angeles Basin is dotted with airports, and the freeway system was built with a, a straight mile every five miles throughout the entire country so that you could land planes. So there, there's a, there's, there's, there was forethought given to what would happen if there were a real disaster and at, at, at the time of the freeway construction, also uh, um, the, the concern was for a, a, an armed defensive for a war. There are there there are there are contingency plans that have been put in place for what you've described. When a disaster happens, we always hear the word FEMA, especially when it's a big disaster and the government gets involved. Uh, could you explain FEMA and also how do local uh, local emergency medical services and systems get connected with FEMA and how do distant 
emergency medical systems get connected. So that is, that's all very well structured, all behind the scenes. It's all well structured. And, and you've mentioned local and you've mentioned FEMA. And there are a number of organizations in between. So there's the, the local response. Within the local response are strike teams that come from neighboring communities and sometimes far away communities with ambulances or fire trucks, depending on the type of disaster. There's a disaster medical assistance team where approximately nine of them around the country, all assembled, trained, and ready to be deployed with equipment to any site within the country where they're needed. And you will typically find a team from an area of the country that's unaffected by your local disaster, which, of course, makes sense. Then there's a statewide disaster region. I'll speak again about California. California is chopped up into five regions, excuse me, six regions. And within those regions are, is an organized way to get assistance from outside of your area. If the, if the disaster exceeds the capability of the state, then, that, then that's when the federal government comes in and FEMA. So FEMA is meant to be an assistance. They're not meant to be the primary responder. They're meant to be a supporting organization for the local and regional disaster organizations. And, and they're quite aware of that as a role, and they work very closely with the local and regional organizations. So the answer to your question, how do you get in touch with FEMA, is that, that, that community education communication plan is all part of all communities' disaster planning. Mm. So, Angelo, the, uh, I have a question, and it concerns like um, what I'd seen uh, recently was, um, you know, classes offered uh they were a little more extensive than first aid classes. They were, is it the CERT program they call it, CRT, where it's not just about first aid for yourself, but it's about actually um, uh, being part of the community. You know, like if there's a disaster, how to pull people out of, you know, a fallen building or from a car, things like that. Um, is that... Uh, something that has uh, begun recently, or has that been going on for quite a while? It's been going for, going on for quite a while, at least 10 years. CERT stands for Community Emergency Response Team, and these individuals are trained, and they're expected, they're given the tools to be able to do just exactly as you say, to be able to help the sick and injured in times of an overwhelming disaster where the typical pre-hospital responders are, are unable to assist in a timely way. We also have something called a, a medical reserve corps, which are, who are health professionals who volunteer. So, so in a time of a disaster, they're able to set up an, an emergency tent in an in a off-site clinic or respond to an earthquake site or, or set up something in a school where they'd be able to treat flu during pandemic flu outbreaks. So there are, I, I, I didn't mention, but there are a number of other types of organizations, sometimes volunteers, sometimes organized, that are ready to respond times of, of, of real disasters. Mm, mm, wonderful. So if people wanted to, you know, it would be recommended that individuals such as ourselves with no medical background go for the CERT programs so that uh, we're always ready and aware, not just for ourselves. I would think it's great for ourselves <laughs> you know? if our family members or even ourselves is caught in a situation, but so that we're also on call for, for people in the neighborhoods. Right. The C is for community, and it's, it's a way of helping your own community. I think, I think it's a great idea. Kudos to the people who thought of it and that continue offering these, this, these instructional classes. <clears throat> Wonderful. Um, and I, I mean, um, when you speak about the doctors that, that uh, uh, are able to set up these tents and in different locations, um, is that uh, mainly also community-oriented? Like it would be up to the communities to, to find those individuals and to, you know, as uh, people to call upon? Or is it more uh, controlled by the state? It's actually a federal initiative hmm. that is administered county by county. 
and it's so you will find emer- medical reserve corps uh, programs throughout the state and throughout the country. It is volunteer. It's organized kind of by county, but it's a federal initiative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if uh, we as a member of the general public, um, is there a way for us to find out if our areas have um, that basically set up for our areas? If you Google Medical Reserve Corps, mm-hmm. you'll be able to get the national organization and they will have uh, a description of state and local efforts. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Because that, that would be the first thing I'm thinking of is like, you know, if anything happens in my area, where do we go? Right? Away from the hospital might be 10 miles away. You know, how do we get there? If, you know, the, the transportation is blocked, the roads are closed, you know, where would we go? All right. So there's, at the time of a disaster, there are emergency operations centers that are already set in place with the communications the, the televisions, the hard line to all of the necessary organizations locally and regionally and nationally. And people will understand to go to this emergency operations center. One of the first things the emergency operations center does is, is establish the communication to the community so that people understand what they need to do. Part of that is, is broadcast over TV and radio. Part of it is through the internet, and part is to have telephone communication. That we have what are called reverse nine one one systems, where you can you can on a map draw a line, click a button, and there's a, a telephone call that goes out. So it's reverse as opposed to calling nine one one in. It's placing a call out to all the telephones in that area, giving them a pre recorded message, telling them what to do and how to get further information. Wow, it's pretty amazing. You know, I found that uh, I was in Canada during the 9-11 situation in New York City. And uh, I, what we had found was, um, luckily I was in Canada because people within the U.S. trying to call into New York actually weren't getting through. But for myself, calling into New York, I got through to all the numbers. So it seemed like like because the lines were saved, no doubt for emergency purposes, they, they, you know, family members weren't able to communicate in there. Yeah, I wasn't that, that I I wasn't aware of that, but it it speaks to what I had mentioned earlier, which is have a backup to the communication plan. You you cannot rely on your cell phone, and in every disaster that's occurred that I'm aware of, the, the first thing that breaks down is communications. So you have to have a, a pre-established plan in place. And w- the one thing I didn't mention is you should be exercising that plan, especially families should, should with their kids, monthly or at least quarterly, but it's recommended monthly, exercise that plan. Sometime during dinner, talk about what you would do. Mm. Because uh, having a plan putting it on a shelf and letting it collect dust is very close to having no plan at all. It's like a first aid kit. <laughs> I pulled out my first aid kit the other day and the bandages don't even stick. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and when do you find that out typically is, is when the disaster has occurred. So mm-hmm. if you can take that extra little step and do what, what well-prepared people do, which is to exercise that plan regularly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay, let's. Uh, that was all really good. Thank you. Uh, I want to stay on our timeline. I, I have a, one question before we move to after the disaster. Many times uh, we see that people are advised by the government, county, local, or federal, usually local, to abandon their homes. Uh, it's a very tough thing for people to do. But I heard once that people should, if they do abandon their homes, in order to make it better for paramedics or fire or police who come in in the aftermath to check, there's some kind of a marking that you should consider putting on your door. Is this something good or is this something that we should not put on our doors to advise uh, other people that seem to follow uh, disasters? 
So the 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 markings that as, as, that I'm aware of as as a professional and saw used very extensively in Katrina are are the markings that tell responders who has been there, whether or not it's safe to enter, and whether the the area has been locked down. If 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 what you're saying is individuals are being asked to do that, then can you can you describe that more and what type of information that you you understood they were in going other, to need to do? Yes. In other words, if if I'm leaving my house and say the fire department is trying to go on a house to house search uh, in order to help the fire department know that they may not need to search my house to see if I'm in there, I'm letting them know that I'm gone. Uh, that kind of a marking on a door or something like that. Yeah. So I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not aware of that being an organized activity or how you would denote that, but, um, it is something that, uh, that certainly makes sense. And we, and we've had those in, in our area, perhaps yours as well. We've had two recent fires that where the entire neighborhood was evacuated for multiple days and I do know that the fire department did exactly as you described, and and whether that would be sufficient information, a mark on the door, um, or they would need to to uh, individually knock on doors as well. I'm, I'm not sure if the, if that's the policy of the fire department. And I can get more information, but I don't have that with me. Okay, let's move into uh, the aftermath, the immediate aftermath, and long term aftermath. And and I don't know if emergency. Medical services is part of counseling, also. So, uh, could you address a little bit of a little bit right after the disaster, uh, and moving on to say weeks to months after a disaster? Yeah. So, emergency medical services is involved in counseling uh, during, <clears throat> and and just as you described, leaving your home is a very traumatic event, especially. If you didn't remember to bring your medications or have all your communication plan in place, uh, and it, it is particularly uh, troubling for people with chronic medical illnesses and for people who have medical devices at home that they rely upon. And we have a whole vulnerable populations program so that we have actually uh, the, you, you have the ability to pre-register. Many communities are like this now where you can pre-register as someone who doesn't have the ability to immediately leave, whether you're, uh, you require real wheelchair otherwise, or otherwise have limited ability to, to um, be mobile. We, we will send out special crews to come get you in times of disasters and evacuations. For people who are having difficulty when they leave their home and have to go to a shelter, we have a counseling service all set up and in place and, um, and ready to treat those people. It, 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 it's a very troubling time. It's well recognized, and we have a system in place to help. You just, you just mentioned something important. How does somebody register for the uh, extra, the more vulnerable? How does someone register a family member or, or themselves? Yeah, so when I when I talk about looking at these these websites, it's gonna it's gonna obviously be different in every community. But if you look at your local emergency medical services or local disaster preparedness, and and every community has this, they'll have that information, and we have it on our emergency medical services website, and so does the county and their disaster preparedness website. Excellent, <clears throat> excellent. So we've talked about our local and our national disasters, and I mentioned at the beginning in introducing you that you are on the advisory board, the editorial advisory board for uh, worldwide uh, emergency medical services. How has the world connected? What have we learned from other countries? What have they learned from us? How do we connect? What do we have to look forward to? Well, it may seem obvious, but the world gets smaller, and as as communication improves, it gets smaller and smaller. And what what we have found is you can get you can obtain experience now in a way that you never could. So when we have had 
issues with terrorism. We only need to turn to Israel to understand how their approaches have helped them deal with terrorism. And in, in, in the same way, multiple different types of, of emergency situations, we, we can acquire the knowledge without having to have gone through the experience. And that's probably the, the best, um, the, the greatest advantage of being able to, to, uh, to deal on, a, on an international level. Because people can telecommute to, uh, to different conferences and gatherings, that the, the the pace by which the, this information is transferred is is increasing and and our knowledge is really becoming much much more um, solidified so that, that that's that's been the, the exciting part is 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 developing international standards for the approach to disasters based on on people who are a lot more experienced in many types of these than we are here in the United States How does how do we get involved uh, nationally? If somebody here in this country sees that is there a disaster in Thailand, um, how did they? How do we get involved here to help people in Thailand? Well, a couple things on that. Uh, first of all, often what they really need are financial resources, and it does help to donate money. Sometimes they need medical resources. The time to, as a, as a health professional, to get involved in a disaster in, let's say, Thailand, is to join an organization before. Again, it's about planning. What happens, in, and we still don't have a good way of organizing this, but the, the ad hoc volunteers who come out and want to help at the time of a disaster is is a, a known behavior. It happens all the time. And if people are available, it's human nature to want to help. It's just very difficult at the time of a disaster to be able to organize that type of assistance. So if you if what you want as a health professional or if you have any skill that you think is would be necessary in the time of emergency, engineers, carpenters, then the, t- the time to think about volunteering is before the disaster occurs. There are a number of non-governmental organizations, NGOs, and governmental organizations that you can begin to look for opportunities to make yourself available. I talk uh, with each of our guests about uh, a special health tip. And uh, I was wondering if you, in your experience, either through emergency medicine or emergency medical services, uh, have a health tip that you would like to share with us. Well, I, I have a couple of little ones that I, I see all the time. And you almost made me talk about it in the very beginning, which is when you were talking about the flu. So... Um, And Christina mentioned how when she goes to her clinic, she's given a mask and an alcohol hand rub. What is little known and hardly ever discussed is that alcohol is a more effective way to clean your hands. It's called hand hygiene in medical circles. More effective way to clean and disinfect your hands than soap and water. You hear a lot about using soap and water, and people feel as if alcohol is a, a distant second in keeping someone from transmitting a disease. But in fact, with a few rare exceptions, alcohol is more effective than hand washing. So that little alcohol bottle is a good idea to bring with you. And when you're touching possibly contaminated surfaces, you should be using that, that alcohol. And, and right now, with the flu around, and, and by the way, Christine, I wouldn't be doing that victory dance quite yet about not getting the flu, because <laughs> every shift I work, I see several patients coming in with the flu that just started the day before. Mm-hmm. So it's still, um, still time to be, to be vigilant. 
Oh, yes. <laughs> that we don't stop, <laughs> especially so with the, a child in school with 650 other students. <laughs> you, exactly. Yes. And, and that's where, where, as you well know, um, flu goes through like, like literally like wildfire. Mm. So the second, Glenn, if, if I could take one more minute, is, is my other area of interest is in designing systems of care to take care of heart attack patients. And mm. from the time you dial 911, Till the time you have your coronary artery, that blocked artery that's causing the heart attack, reopened in systems around the country, including right here in most of our places in California, is very, very short. We, we can act very rapidly. Everything is like clockwork. What we can't control, however, is the amount of time it takes from the time you get your chest pain to the time you've decided it's time to seek medical care. And we have now medical systems where from the time you call 911 to reopen your artery is less than an hour. The, the ambulance responds, it diagnoses, takes you to the right hospital, sometimes bypassing the closer hospitals. The cardiologist meets you, takes you to the cath lab and does this complex procedure to open up the artery. And that can take less than an hour. But people throughout the United States, throughout the world actually, wait an average of two hours before they call. So we, we can't make our systems much better than they are except by encouraging people when you have the symptoms of a heart attack. For men, that's almost always going to be chest pain or shoulder pain or arm pain, sweatiness and nausea. For women, it could be just simply being really tired. And if you can recognize those symptoms of a heart attack, I'm going to I'm going to direct you to looking at the Heart Association or other websites to to understand them better. Think about calling 911. I'd, I'd rather have you come into my emergency room not having heart, had a heart attack than die at home because you didn't recognize the symptoms. Mm. A great tip for yes. everybody. And it's good to bring that up again. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is so there anything so far... Did you have a question, Christina? Did anything uh, no, come in? No, there's just a, a lot to take in. But a question did come in... Um, uh, for Angelo here, um, how can you sustain? Um, how can you sustain supplies for an emergency? Um, I'm assuming they're asking, you know, uh, how often we should check on them and uh, um, purchase new ones, purchase new replacements, etc. About how often? Well, you should be able to, the water can last indefinitely, years. You can get perishable, non-perishable foods and plates and utensils that will last for years as well. But uh, the, the, the two things I would be careful about are, are batteries, which won't last for years, mm -hmm. and exercising the plan. So if what you do is monthly or quarterly, truly exercise your plan, you'll be opening up and seeing what you have. But many of the things that you really need, the, the tools to close off your gas, the utensils and water and non-perishable foods, you, you, they, they will last for years. If, if you assemble them, make sure they're there and check on them when you exercise your plan. Great. Thank you. Yeah. You know, that brings up something that, uh, Along with what you're saying, I had an issue uh, recently, and I had to call the gas company. And they actually offer services to come out to your house uh, for free and to look around the house and give you suggestions, teach you where the gas valve is, and tell you what kind of a tool you can get and how to mark it off and other things to look for and check things. So I think that's something that people as part of their plan should consider doing when you say to turn off the gas. Many people may not know where it is, uh, especially, or, or just maybe one person in the house may know. Everyone may need to know. So call the gas company also. Mm -hmm. Angelo. That's, that's a great thought. Thank you. Angelo, uh, we've spoken about a lot today. And from the time that I talked to you about doing this show, I know the way that you think you had a lot that you wanted to say and certainly you've given us some great information in a uh, easy to understand manner very organized it was very beautiful is there anything uh that you or i have left out that you would like to bring up so that you don't think oh i wish i spoke about that 
No, but I'm I'm going to just say one thing one more time, which is their disaster preparedness is something that you you can't learn simply by listening to me one time. It's something that you should take advantage of the resources that I've suggested and make your own plan and think about it periodically. Uh, absent that, you're 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 not going to be as prepared as you think, and you're going to be more vulnerable than you're going to want to be. So, if you if you really want to be prepared, learn more and practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I do have a quick question. I mean, we've we've talked about the preparedness at home and for the community. Now, do you suggest anything for us in our automobiles? Because I mean, I live in LA. <laughs> Half right. of us spend, uh, you know, twenty-five percent of our day in the car. And and I didn't go over this, but many organizations, including the Red Cross, uh, suggest that you have a small emergency kit in your car that includes some food, change of clothes, some water. So, it, it, because as you say, if you're traveling in your car, and and I said early on, Dad's at a meeting. Well, if the if the building is collapsed and he can't get out of the parking lot, he he may be stuck in that car for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. So it w- it would be reasonable to have in your trunk a change of clothes and a, a mini amount of supplies that could last you a day or two, waiting to be able to get out and evacuate. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> Angelo, in, in your mind, uh, you know, you say this and we listen and clearly everything you're saying is important and should be followed. What percentage of people follow this? Um, small. A small percentage of people follow this. Uh, less than half, certainly. Probably more like 10 or 20 percent. Mm. And, and that's been shown time after time. And if if we could improve it, we would all be doing ourselves and our communities a, a great favor. But on the other hand, the people who listen to these broadcasts are more likely to do it. So that, that that's why it's worth doing it. You're selecting those individuals that might not have thought of it, but listen and say, hmm, yeah, that sounds like a really good idea. I think I'll do that. The, the people who have no interest whatsoever are um, are watching Oprah right now. And uh, it, it's it's uh, and are, are probably not susceptible to, the, to to these messages. But I but I'm I'm confident that the the, the people that listen are going to listen, a large portion of them. If we wanted to compete with Oprah, is there anything you'd like to confess to us? <laughs> <laughs> you said you wouldn't tell, Glenn. <laughs> I'm not telling. I'm just I'm just asking. <laughs> <laughs> I I am grateful to our special guest, uh, Dr. Angelo Salvucci, for sharing his wisdom and expertise and experience with us. I'd also like to thank all of my healers and teachers as they have uh, taken me on my journey. I look forward to seeing all of you or speaking with all of you uh, next week as we search another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy in search of uh, ways to be better. And until that time, I want to thank our special guest again, Dr. Angelo Salvucci, and to Christina, and wish you all optimal health. Thank you, Angelo. Thank you, Glenn. Thank, thank you, you very much to both docs. <laughs> to both doctors that are with us today. Thank you so much. And of course, I would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us and supporting us in this new platform of education information. We're very, very grateful for your continuous support and look forward to hearing on how we can support you better. We're also excited to announce that you can now access Magical Medical Tour through iTunes. And actually on the website itself, there is a little button that will link you directly there. And when you do so, it would be, we'd be very grateful if you could take a moment to support us further by rating the show. And of course, uh, now, um, <clears throat> Trinity of Life is actually on its 12th episode in iTunes and flowing into awareness. Actually, I do believe most of the shows are up there as well. We invite you to join us live every Tuesday at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 1.30 Eastern Time for the Magical Medical Tour, Wednesdays for Trinity of Life at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. 
followed every other week by Flowing into Awareness with Anatara. You can find Glenn Woolman at myyogahub.com forward slash gwoolman and his Twitter handle at Glenn Woolman and of course through his own site at glennwoolman.com where you can learn about his metaphor square breath. Thank you very much and until we meet again, namaste. Namaste.